planet Earth, what is going on? This is the Awoken Word Podcast, and I am your host, Anuj Rastogi. Okay, a bit of housekeeping. First of all, we just crossed the one-year anniversary of the Awoken Word Podcast, and all I can say is it's been an incredible roller coaster of a year, and I am so deeply grateful and appreciative for all of you who have checked out the podcast and rolled through and told friends and just enjoyed the conversations. And I want to give a special shout out to my wife who has been an incredible source of inspiration and support. At times she has been a critic. She has been a cheerleader. She has helped me vet ideas and she's just always right there. And I really appreciate you. The one other piece of housekeeping is really this. As we go into the second year of this podcast, I really appreciate everyone who's come out so far, and I really want these conversations to spread as far and wide as they can. So I know what you're thinking. How can I help spread the word about Awoken Word? Well, first of all, if you've been listening to even one episode or many, drop by the Apple Podcasts page, leave a review, leave a rating. All of that really helps to spread the word about the show. As well, you can check us out on any number of platforms from Google Podcasts to Spotify. You can also check us out, of course, on Ruckus Avenue Radio. The entire team over there is fantastic. Thank you so much to all of you. Now, when it comes to podcasts, as with many other things in life, at the end of the day, word of mouth is the most powerful thing. So if you've been digging this podcast, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your dog, tell your cat tell that new little guinea pig that you just bought your kids or the stray llama that's walking down your street. If you happen to be walking through a meadow or a produce aisle at a supermarket or just the street on your way to work, just shout it out. Tell them awokenword.com. This is where you heard it. And if people on the street or in that produce aisle tell you that you're crazy for talking to yourself, tell them, no, you're crazy for not checking out this podcast. And in case you didn't know, Every time you so much as whisper about this podcast, a puppy somewhere on the planet takes its first steps and a brand new flower erupts from the soil. So it's really important. Thank you again, everyone who's come out and supported, but just make sure you spread the word as far and wide as you can. And uh, if you're shy to even leave a review, just follow us on Twitter at Awoken Word or follow us on Instagram at Awoken Word Podcast. We'll definitely be sharing more behind the scenes about the podcast and about all the guests and the inspirations and ideas that are really important to us here. Moving along to today's episode, it is a different one. I am very blessed to be in the circle and company of very interesting people, and our guest today is absolutely the personification of this. Barka Madan is formerly a model and formerly a actor in the Hindi film or more commonly known Bollywood film industry. Barka had become quite well known in the worlds of fashion and film. And when we met, which was back in around 2011 or 2012, I had the opportunity, really the privilege to work side by side with her on what would become her first film production And it was exciting because it was a chance to work on a film score that I composed with 
an individual who's just clearly wired in a very different way. Now, at the time that I met Barca, she was still in the form or incarnation of an actress, a film producer, filmmaker. Little did I know that not much later, she would be taking on an entirely new transformation. Barca actually moved from the worlds of film and fashion, and today is a Buddhist nun. She travels all around the world. She is one of the more balanced and just plugged in human beings we have ever had a chance to meet. So in this conversation, we'll hear a lot about her own transformation, uh, what it's been like to be a Buddhist nun in the world today, especially coming from the worlds that she came from, having now met people all over the world, having met the Dalai Lama himself. We talk a lot about what true happiness is, her not wanting to continue on a path of just part-time spirituality, but taking it all the way. We try to deconstruct the Buddhist perspective on suffering and what can be done to remove it. We riff a little bit on a mutual weakness for chocolate cake. We also talk a lot about the complexities of doing the right thing in this modern world, particularly in a context where many of us work in companies or do things that we do with all of our heart with the best of intent, but the systems in which we work may not necessarily be doing the best thing for the world. And how do we reconcile the two? We also spend some time talking a little bit about how do we work good into our everyday life and our decisions and our choices. And we spend a lot of time talking about travel and the beauty of travel and what it is that makes her love travel and the magic that is this entire world and the journey of meeting people. So this conversation with Barca was a real treat. I've been wanting to connect with her for quite some time. We hadn't seen her for a few years, so was really happy and honored and privileged that she came through. So now here without further delay is my conversation with Barca Madan. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring this podcast is my love letter to all of you. And we are live back here in the Awoken Word studio in Toronto. This is actually exciting for me because uh, I've been traveling a lot over the last few months. And I'm really excited about today's conversation because I am extremely humbled and honored to have Barka Madan here today with me. Barka, how are you? Very well, Anuj. And it's an honor. I'm just joyful to be here in your company again. Thank you so much for hosting me. Well, it's, uh, the pleasure is all ours. Uh, you know, it was funny because when you had reached out over Facebook saying that you were coming, I'm like, yes, she's finally coming. Like, this is awesome. It was like, it was a sign. We met back in what? It was 2012, something like that, right? Yeah. It was 2012 or 2011 when we really were filming, actually. Okay. And then I came back for post-production in 2012. Right. Or was something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I don't really remember. But yeah, 2012 for sure. Yeah. Like we spent a chunk of time together working on that film. Yeah, it's funny. Time kind of plays tricks uh, on us. It's funny also because here we are in the studio having this conversation when everything that kind of led up to this actually started in the studio much <laughs> like this too. Yes, it did. So 
I don't want to spoil your story because quite honestly, I can't do it the justice that you will. But I'm curious to know, when I met you, you were a film actress. I know that you've modeled in the past. And then we had the chance to work together on this film, Sur Cobb, which was quite an incredible experience for me. I was really appreciative that you guys took a chance on, on, on letting me bring that film to life with the music. Soon after that, you go through, to me, what was somewhat of a surprise on this sort of outward transformation. But it doesn't seem like it was perhaps maybe that much of a transformation for you because it was always on the inside. So who are you? <laughs> I'm still asking myself that question, who am I? And I think this is what led me to even explore and um, and also led me to where I am today. Uh, who am I? What's my purpose? And what's anybody's purpose in this human life? And, you know, besides making a name for ourselves and a million bucks to buy a house or, you know, have a car. Or, you know. So... Yeah, who I am, I'm still exploring who I am. But right now, I'm sitting in front of you in the garb of a Buddhist nun. That's what I am. <laughs> mm, I like that, that you're saying you're in the garb of a, of a Buddhist nun. Okay, so first of all, technically, is it Buddhist nun? Is it Buddhist monk? Just so we can kind of get that out of the way. Oh, come on, it's just a label. So I know. Um, for all practical purposes, a Buddhist nun and if people found that too complicated, I make it simple for them. Well, okay, if you want to call me a monk, I have no problems with that. It's just, um, none is just a female monk. Hmm. <laughs> so let's back up here. Talk to me a little bit about where you're coming from. I actually find it quite fascinating the turn that things have taken for you, or rather that you took for yourself. And I find it both confusing and inspiring all at the same time. And I think that you're one of the few people that I've known, at least in my own personal experience, who have transcended two very different ways of living. And yet at the same time, having known you as long and as well as we have, you're pretty much exactly the same person. Like you're not a different person. So it's just, uh, it's curious. Like I I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I think the basic qualities of a person sort of remain and um, there is always a room for improvement and room to evolve and, you know, so I don't know if, because if you, if you say that I haven't changed and I'm the same person, that's kind of contradictory because we're changing all the time. Okay. <laughs> but if you're saying that... Um, Whatever you see, whatever qualities that are more apparent to you now were always there, then I can agree with that one. <laughs> I, so, yeah, let, let's say the essence of the fundamentals of what I think I knew about you before and today, you're the same uh, sort of energy, I guess, in a way. Well, yes. I mean, okay, you met me when I was an actor or a producer and we were working together, so... However we resonated with each other definitely has to say what kind of value system I bring to work, what's my orientation towards my art and my craft, and how I am dealing with people and how how I am dealing with you per se, because this is a personal experience. So if all of that was nice and positive and, and inspiring that we have sort of lived our relationship for this long, so there is something good about it, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if those are my basic qualities, then... 
I mean, yes, those are my basic qualities. If that's what you're resonating with, then sure, then I think you have an eye to see that. Because otherwise, I've changed quite dramatically if you look at me right now. <laughs> you know, my, my appearance is quite a very different from what I looked. I mean, look at this picture. I have a bunch of hair here. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so for, for those of you that obviously can't see this because you're listening to this right now, in front of Barca is a copy of the Surkab soundtrack uh, that I had scored and produced. And on it, we see Barca in her pre-Buddhist nun incarnation. <laughs> so it's it's actually so dramatic, at least on the surface, that you know my daughter, who knew you from the movie, she came to see the premiere and everything. I think when she met you the next time and you know saw you in your, your sort of new form, I think she was really confused, as I'm sure many people that you come across yes. have been. She was one year old when I met her, right? Yeah, but yeah. then I think she she saw you. We met again because I have I've been here before. Yeah, but I think she but she had seen she had seen me scoring the film so many yes. times. She had seen the rough cut. She when family had come over, they'd seen it. She'd seen it again at the festival screening. So I think she saw you and knew you yeah. through that. And then I think when she saw you again, like in person. For her, it was, it was sort of a confusion, like, okay, what's happening here? This is new. And I mean, keep in mind, she was only, I guess, three or four at the time by the time she saw you again. But Well, that's bound to happen because uh, it, this confusion was with uh, not, I mean, she's a kid, but many people who thought they knew me for so long and they had no idea I'd be turning my life around like this. Um, but I, I think I always had this in me, um, like I said in the very beginning, that what is really my true purpose and why am I here and why are most people here? What are we doing? You know, so, um, and also I was always questioning um, what what really freedom is. I always remember saying that I want my, I want my freedom. For a long time, I remember thinking that freedom means like, you know, being able to do what I want at my terms. This is what we kind of think of when we are growing up as a teenager and especially as a teenage girl coming from a certain cultural background um, to be able to do what you want mm-hmm. at your own terms is a big deal you know because you have all these do's and don'ts and taboos growing up in India that you can't do this you can't do that you can't do this especially because you're a girl you can't do this because you are not a boy you know so I was like why can't I not do something I want to do? And why are all these systems put in place for me to not be able to explore the world the way I want to? Mm-hmm. You know? Do you think that if you were a man and you went from being an actor, producer, model, and then you took the turn that you've taken, do you think that it would have been different? Do you think that the experience of making that switch would have been seen differently by the people around you? Or do you think it would have been more or less the same sort of journey? I don't even want to say challenge, but just the journey that you've taken. I don't know. I've never given it a thought like that. I've never had that gender thing playing in my own head. I also always perceive it's just playing in your head. It's playing in people's head that there has to be a gender divide. And now I'm guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> because for me, it was just like, just the same way my brother looks at the things and he wants to explore it. So I should be allowed to do the same, you know? Hmm. And... I had no divide in my head and I never thought I was anything less. And that would irk the life out of me. Like, what do you mean limitations? You know, like, how do you know the male body doesn't have limitations? You know? Did they ever say what those limitations were? No, they can never explain that to you because 
honestly, there aren't any. This is more like a social projection of having limitations. Right. You know, and there is no logical reasoning for these kinds of thoughts and ideas, but whatever. So my quest was freedom. And I was like, okay, so maybe making a lot of money will make me get me that freedom. Because when once you have a sort of a financial standing and things, you can you can do your own thing. You know, you're not dependent on people uh, for your survival. And you often hear this, as long as you're staying in this house, you have to follow my rules. <laughs> mm. um, okay, I need to get my own house. <laughs> so yeah, that, that led me to to travel, to move out of my own own house. And I moved to Bombay. And uh, modeling happened early in college. And I honestly, it was not my burning ambition to be a model or an actor. Uh, I enjoyed doing that stuff and it got me good money. But it was more, it was more about being independent. And this just happened to be a profession that came my way. What did you enjoy and not enjoy about that about modeling yeah modeling oh what i didn't enjoy is very clear uh over objectifying um you know and setting up these trends for that younger women would follow and then they are kind of unrealistic you know i did not enjoy that at all and uh, and many many sort of uh practices that are there in the um film fraternity uh, there is never an equal pay the way they um, treat women, you know, and just the conditions for women are not very uh, respectful. I mean, it's changed quite a bit now, but when I joined it, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And the roles given to us were more about just, you know, being like this glamour doll kind of a role and nothing really substantial out there. Everything was very male dominated. And so all of those aspects were something that was always like, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? But I did enjoy the craft, mm. you know. Okay. I enjoyed being an actor. I liked my craft. I liked working on that craft. And I spent a great deal of time kind of, you know, cultivating it because I had not gone to any kind of acting school or anything. Mm. Yeah, so those aspects were really interesting to be to be able to be a new new being every day with every new character and approaching the character and the things behind it. But then there was this other side of it which always, um, in some ways, a business part of it, which always kind of um, made it like, why does it have to be this way? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the pressing question. This is unethical. Why does the system have to be in a way um, which is making you compromise on your uh, value system, you know, on your right. ethics? And, and why do people sort of say, this is the way it is, take it or lump it? Mm-hmm. You know, and so they would say, my friends would say to me, you are a rebel in, in many ways, but we don't understand your cause. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, how come you not, you don't see it, that I don't go with the flow of, of the system or the way it is happening, because it's not complying to my value systems. You know, I don't know, um, in all of your, you know, international woman of mystery travels now if you have much time for films and whatnot but when you look at films coming particularly out of india and you look at the shift in the tone in the narratives in the story in what appears to be a a greater prominence of women and female-centric stories in it 
do you think, at least on the outside, like forget what's happening behind the scenes for a moment, but do you feel like things have changed in a significant way? A lot. Even the kind of movie that's coming out right now, the content is so much more, uh, you know, pertinent to our time and age. And there's a huge difference in the way movies are being made. So much young talent is coming up. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> when we made Surkab and when we even started our company, Golden Great Creations, we did this with the idea of um, making independent stories in movies. Right. You know, so... Of course, there was all this thought and we put in a lot of effort and energy. And at the same time, my mind would say, but do I really want to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, so um, going back, like everybody sees this this transformation of this change as like it's sudden. But for me personally, it was growing from the age of 10. You know, I always would question and say, no, I think there is a deeper purpose to be and um, yeah, so when I got in contact with the Buddhist philosophy, and, and especially His Holiness Dalai Lama, and it kind of started giving me answers that I was seeking deeply inside, you know, really what truly freedom is. And even if I have all kinds of money and name and fame, it doesn't prevent me from being sad. <laughs> hmm. You know, I'm going to die one day. It's a given, you know. Um I'm I'm aging. I can't stop my aging or reverse my aging. I can perhaps, if I have a lot of money, sort of, you know, do things to change it or like, you know, cover it up, cover yeah, it up yeah, in yeah. some way. But you can't really prevent yourself from going through these processes. And in this entire quest of becoming who you are, we lose touch with our true purpose and we don't connect with people anymore. We're doing everything for this self-cherishing, you know, Mm -hmm. everything is for my ego, for my satisfaction. And then when I have time, I can look at other things in life, you know. So when I, I will not move myself out of my comfort zone to do anything else for people. This is how bare bones of it, mind works when you are in the whole um, gamut of making money and making a name for yourself. It's, uh, it's, I'm curious your time as an actor, what kind of drove you at that time? Just uh, a few weeks ago, I was in LA. I was actually out at a a Ruckus Avenue radio event. Shout outs to Sammy Chan and the whole crew there. It was interesting because I'm in LA for this event and there's a bartender there, nice guy, friendly guy. And uh, we just kind of got to chatting. Lo and behold, he's in LA. He's only been there two weeks. He'd moved out from Colorado and he's moved there to be an actor. So he's in LA living, trying to make ends meet as a bartender. And I'm like, okay, there's a cliche story if there ever was one. We got to talking, I'm like, okay, so what the hell made you just pick up from Colorado, come here to LA and become a bartender so that you could become an actor? And he said one word, which just completely floored me because it was a, not a word I expected to hear from, from him. And that was empathy. I'm like, okay, tell me more. And he basically went on to say how being an actor, he can put himself in other people's skin and there's an empathy that he feels he could build from that. And I've heard that from other actors before. So conceptually it was not new, but I was actually really quite impressed that somebody was thinking about that. And it turns out he's only 24, you know, he's two weeks into LA, but he at least had that spark. And I thought it was interesting because actors 
are people who put themselves in other people's skin. And if we spent even a fraction of that time truly putting ourselves in other people's shoes, perhaps this world w- would be a lot different. So I, I'm, I'm curious, there's parts of the craft that you enjoyed, but there was a lot of the other stuff that you didn't enjoy. When you were around other actors, models and whatnot, do you feel like you were one of the only people that felt the way that you do? Or did others feel this way and perhaps not express it or just suppress it? Well, I think I was very fortunate. I did have a good set of friends, like-minded people. And yes, I they did. And one of my uh really dear friends uh, she was a top model in India Jessie Randhawa for the longest time and I mean, even now in, she wants she can be on the ramp she can give you know run for money to like, a lot of youngsters she too and her path right now is yoga meditation and teaching yoga to everybody especially people who are having uh, a lot of ailments in the body and stuff like mm. that so curative yoga in that sense and um, it for her it happened also very organically you know this this change of path and so I, I I had these kind of friends and I also had friends who resonated with what I was doing and and support me in many ways um, morally and like you know as, as a friend would but they said but we still don't understand taking the leap like why would you want to take the leap you can be where you are and then serve people if you want to serve people you know mm. and I said but I, and I was doing that so it brought me back to my own understanding, it's not just about serving people. It is serving people the best of your intentions. And then what I'm trying, what I'm striving for is to get to the root why is there is so much pain and suffering. Hmm. And is there a way that that can be removed? You know, is there a cessation of this suffering? Um so every time I go back to in, to my text and study, and especially the study of Four Noble Truths, where Buddha has very clearly laid out, you know, life is suffering. That's the first noble truth. There are causes of suffering. Second noble truth. And there is a cessation. Life. That means there is a way we can get rid of it. And that sort of hooks me. That's my hook point. Well, if there is, then why are we not working for it? Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's stopping us? I mean, I can understand if there is no way out, then you would just have to live the way it is. But if there is a way and somebody has walked the path, laid it out, laid out the whole doctrine for you, and it's time tested, and it's being tested by by many, you know, beings over and over again, and it's holding the truth, it's a truth, why not give it a shot? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you got to lose? Just on that thought, I was like, I would really want to dedicate my time and energy in getting to that. And while I'm doing that service, helping people, my practice is what I do on the side. So you You didn't want to do like part-time spirituality, basically? I tried doing it for many years, honestly, when I was working. I mean, that's where, that's why when you're saying like nothing has changed because what is spirituality? What is Dharma practice? You know, you work with a virtuous mind. You just, you set a good motivation for when you're approaching your work and your friends and your relationships, and then you work with that. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't consciously go and harm people there, to keep it very simple. I was working with it, but like I said, I was like, mm, it needs more, it needs more. I really have to get out of my comfort zone. Right. You know, 
It can be when I have got the award and when I have reached that pinnacle that I can take time off and go to an ashram. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, that's how we kind of, we approach it like that. Yeah. And then it's not going to give me the results that I'm looking for. What are you looking for? Like I said, cessation to suffering. And not just for myself. Once I find it for myself, then to the humankind. And I am looking for it, but the great master Shakyamuni Buddha already found the way out. He's led the whole path. And he's repeatedly said in his many sermons that this is something we can do. This is something humans can do. Here's one thing I'm curious, and this perhaps this is just my ignorance as, as a dummy here, but in theory, suffering, there is a cessation to suffering. But in your view, or at least in the accepted understanding of this, has anyone ever reached a true cessation of suffering? Because in order for that to happen, wouldn't all of us need to be free of suffering? Like if one is suffering, then it's affecting everyone else. Or am I missing something here? There are kinds of suffering. You know, first of all, we have to understand when from a Buddhist perspective, when you're talking about suffering, so first of all, how do you define suffering? And we know one level of suffering, we call it suffering of suffering. I mean, I have a headache and I'm suffering, you know, it's a basic way, um, suffering of change. It was nice and pleasant weather this morning and by evening it's like freezing cold and it changes and it changes my mood, it changes various other things. Welcome to Canada. (laughs) (laughs) So we know that kind of suffering, suffering of change. And I'm in Canada today. I'm going to be on a long flight tomorrow to India. You know, the discomfort that comes with it. But what we don't really pay attention to is the pervasive kind of suffering. That... Anything that I'm partaking in thinking is going to bring me bliss and happiness and enjoyment and comfort necessarily leads to suffering. You know, that is that enjoyment, that comfort I'm getting is short-lived. So just to give an example, I really like eating chocolate cake. So, but I know if I have like more than two slices, I can get sick. So, but the mind says when I'm craving chocolate cake, there's inherent deliciousness in the chocolate cake. And the moment I eat chocolate cake, I'll be so happy and, you know, over the top or whatever. But just the moment I'm putting the second slice in, you know, in my mouth, I know I'm already full and I'm going to be sick of it. Mm -hmm. But the mind always grasps at that cake as an inherently delicious. And every time I'm going to eat it. You are really selling me on this chocolate (laughs) cake right now. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I'm going to partake in it, I should uh, be happy. But that's not the case, you know. So, in other words, happiness is within my own mind and not in things outside of me. Except for when it comes to chocolate cake. Oh, yeah, I make that exception too. (laughs) But, But is that because the moment you start talking about in terms of joy and pain or pain and pleasure that we are talking about it in the context of it being dualistic and that you only have enjoyment if you have suffering you only have something delicious if you have something that tastes terrible like or is it because that sensory pleasure of eating that chocolate cake or doing whatever it is can only last for a short period of time like what is it that makes that suffering what makes it suffering is that it is rooted in 
dissatisfaction. For the mind, after having enjoyed the chocolate cake, moves to something else, and then something else, and then something else, and that there is no ending to that something else. You know, I have this night. I have this phone right now. You present another version of iPhone, whatever X, whatever's floating around in the market right now. I want that. You know, I have this car now. I want that car now. So there is no end to this. So we are trying to fill ourselves by trying to achieve material things to be happy, to be satiated. And it's kind of proven over and over again that these things don't really make you happy. Mm-hmm. You know, it prov- provides you with a certain element of comfort, but even that comfort is very short-lived, you know. I mean, just that. So what it is that's going to make me truly happy? Buddha is not saying you give up eating chocolate cake or you give up sitting in a nice fancy car, you know. All he's trying to tell you is that you give up your attachment to that right. pleasure. And to give up that attachment is the whole practice. You know? So, hmm. renunciation doesn't say renouncing your house and your car and your family and renunciation is simply saying you can renounce what you have right now. You can't renounce what you don't have. So, in this real time, we have anger, we have jealousy, we have dissatisfaction, we have insecurity, we have jealousy. Let's renounce those. You know, everything else will be taken care of. So, we need to start from there, mm-hmm. you know. But the process is we start from renouncing what is external. So, I mean, everything that you're saying is, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. And it's also very much sort of a lived experience in a way for you. But for many people who are going through some sort of trauma in their lives, whether as in childhood or financial uncertainty or illness or something that's completely out of their control or whatnot, you know, if they can't even just sort of make basic ends meet or find food, you know, for their next meal. There's obviously a transient or temporal suffering that's happening there for them. But I think arriving at the conclusions that you've been able to explore would be a stretch for many people. It's even a stretch for many people who, you know, even like myself, who are, you know, we have enough to say that we are above that certain rung on Maslow's hierarchy. We should be able to explore these other ideas. But for a lot of people, it's not just such an intuitive, obvious thing. And yet they're suffering and they could benefit from this. So what is it that we can do to actually introduce these ideas to people in a way that would actually benefit them? Because not everyone's going to be at the same point in time, at the same place mentally, spiritually, based on where they are in their life. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. And um, this was my personal journey. So I was sharing my, you know, what was happening in my mind. And um, clearly, so if somebody is hungry, you offer the person food and not a lecture on philosophy, you know. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. that's pointless. If somebody is sick, you offer the person medicine and, and, you know, take care of the person. You give the person what the person is in need of. And share, be kind-hearted, you know. Extend some sympathy and empathy towards a person who needs it. And in fact, extend to all. But if there is any particular situation that requires that kind of attention, please give so. You know, to sit there and say and slap them with the hand of karma and saying, oh, this is because you've not done good deeds in the past. 
that's kind of not the skillful way of dealing with it, mm-hmm. you know. And yes, it might not be everybody's cup of tea or coffee to even think of like, oh, I can get out of this gamut of suffering and stuff like that. So creating a balance, maybe. It's, you know? it's funny. Um, I mean, when you talk about them as noble truths, the idea that material fame, you know, the newest iPhone, whatever, that this stuff doesn't make us happy. I would say if there was ever a time in human history where people understood this, or let me correct myself, if there was ever a time in human history where people had heard that stuff will not make you happy, it would be now. We, we live in this kind of strange time where, you know, you kind of, you flip through Instagram and you'll see these inspiring quotes about non-attachment, the journey and travel and experience, and it's not about amassing stuff. And then you flip the next one and it's about some guy's new car or who's at what party and whatnot. So this conflict of this attachment to these material things has perhaps never been more pronounced than it is right now. But people know that stuff doesn't make them happy. And yet we keep chasing it and it shows up in music, it shows up in media, it shows up in film, it shows up in everyday life. We know this, we get the idea, why do we still keep doing this? Habit. It's a habit. It's addiction to that, you know, and because it's been done over and over again, it seems like the right thing to do. And who's going to break the habit for you? I mean, you know, if you, if you have a habit that's harming your body, it's only you who can who can, you know, get out of it. There can be immense amount of self-help books and gurus and ashrams and techniques and therapies out there. But until unless you don't take the first step and you don't have the recognition that I'm suffering, you know, I need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear. If you know you're, you're suffering because you don't have food in your belly, you will do something to go get yourself some food. You'll work, you know. If you think finding work is difficult, you will do something else to survive, but because you have the recognition. Mm-hmm. For, but the kind of suffering I'm talking about, uh, it's meant for people who have the basics met. Right. You know, like you were saying, people like ourselves, you know, who who don't have to really worry about so much, or oh, where's my next meal going to come from? So we, we are above the line of poverty and we have a good amount of comfort and things like that. And then we become lazy, Mm. And we are habituated to that kind of laziness. But everything is fine. There's no suffering in here. Yeah, the little ups and downs, that's part of life. Right. You know? And then tell me something. It's not just now. If you look at Buddha's life, he was born, he was a, he was a prince. Mm-hmm. He was born in a princely family. You know, he was born to a king who was the mighty king of that time. And he wanted his son to take over the throne and expand the regime. Yeah. Right? And his father, when he got to know that there's a potential of my son to become a sage, had completely cordoned his quarters off. He would see no signs of aging, no signs of sickness. He hadn't even seen an old body till he actually went out of the um, peripherals of his, of his palace. Right. And he was almost in his 20s by that time. What did his father think he would achieve by keeping his son sheltered from that? He thought once he has an exposure, because uh, it was prophesied, it's going to lead to those questioning, to the quest. 
Ah, what is okay. going on here? You know, and then this is what exactly coming to your point. We do have exposure to that life, but we don't entertain the seeds further. We kind of turn our minds away from it, you know. But for him, for that man, for the young man, the moment he saw these four sides of aging, sickness, death, you know, and a sight of a man walking very calmly uh, towards the forest, he was very intrigued. Mm-hmm. So everybody's going to die, everybody's going to age. And what intrigued him further was that all his power, all his youth, his, uh, you know, skillful adeptness of being a good archer or a shooter or whatever, cannot prevent him from dying, cannot prevent him from getting old, cannot prevent him from getting sickness. Then then that kind of resonated, what is it for then? If it can't take Mm. away these kinds of sicknesses, you know, then I'm not truly free. I'm not truly powerful. It's it's funny, actually. It never had occurred to me until now. In some ways, his father almost did the future a service by keeping his son sheltered because it probably made that epiphany, that realization, that much more powerful. Because if I, I, I imagine if you're, if you're already inclined to have a certain set of realizations or a certain journey and then see little by little all of those things that would motivate you, it might not be as profound and cathartic an experience as if for 20, 25 years of your life, you've never seen any kind of suffering or aging or anything. And all of a sudden, boom, you realize that that whole thing was just a bubble. The whole thing was a sham. And by that point, if these ideas have already been percolating in your mind, I can only imagine that that realization was probably that much more powerful. I, I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a, there's a film called The Truman Show, I don't know if you remember that. Yes, I the, the Truman Show, I think, in some ways almost has this parallel. Like, he's living in this idyllic American dream mm-hmm. neighborhood, and then all of a sudden he hits the wall of the actual bubble that he's living inside of. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the human experience is just so damn funny, right? Like, we all have these well, bizarre is, but, journeys. But the interesting part is, why do we want to turn our, our minds away once, even if we have a hint or a glimpse of that kind of recognition? We don't entertain that thought further. What makes us turn away and say, ah, no, it's okay, it doesn't matter, don't get too deeply involved in this? You know, why, what are we fearful about? Like, I, I know another person I met, and um, she was very geared up to, to take up vows, and she had come prepared and everything. And then something pulled her back and she didn't do it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, her, that's her choice, of course. And later on, we had a conversation. And so she asked me, why did you take the plunge? And I said, why did you not take the plunge? Because you have been preparing for it. She came prepared with robes and everything, head shaved and all of that stuff, you know. And she said, I just got cold feet. Hmm. And that for me was bizarre, you know. I was like, but you were preparing. It's like somebody was preparing for Olympics and then suddenly on the day of the tournament backs out, you know. I don't know. And then I did did sort of, do you want to tell me more? And she was like, I wasn't really ready inside and I thought I'm just... um, giving into some kind of a whimsical idea. Mm. I'm more like, um, she said, I just wanted to be true to myself sitting there and I thought um, that I'm doing this because I wanted to try it so bad, you know. And yeah. it was 
it was coming like an escape route to me. Right. And I was like, whoa, then that's good. Then that's good because this is no escape route. It almost goes to show like if two people were watching both of you at the same time, and I, I don't know if this is true, but on the outside, perhaps it looked like she was preparing more and it might have looked like you're just kind of going about your daily life. And then all of a sudden, like the twist ending is the one who's been preparing doesn't make the jump and the one that you didn't even expect did. But we don't really know the inner workings of anyone's mind. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of a tsunami is just kind of fascinating to me. The fact that you can have seismic activity in the ocean and an earthquake that's like somewhere out at sea. There's many tellings of this in Japanese folklore where the Japanese fishing boats would be out in the middle of the ocean, would come back and see that the village that they're from is just completely ravaged. It's just been destroyed. So when a tsunami actually originates under an earthquake or a seismic shift, that wave energy can pass right under the surface out like, you know, in the deep ocean, you wouldn't even notice a ripple that was abnormal, but the closer it gets to the shore, that wave just starts to um, grow relative to the depth of the water. And then all of a sudden just crashes into the ground. So it's this thing that's incredibly devastating, but depending on where you are relative to it, you may not even know that it happened. And I find that fascinating about people too, because you come across people like this in life all the time that like, wait a second, you did what? Like it is not <laughs> congruent with this idea that you have of them. Like, and my idea of, you know, I was telling you that you don't seem different today than you did then. I think probably because we got to know you in a certain way, but I'm sure a lot of people were really surprised and kind of taken aback by it because what you did didn't fit the idea the image that they had created of you in their own heads. Oh, absolutely. There are many people who were shocked. Um, Many people who uh, didn't understand, had confusion. There was, uh, you know, mixed feelings. And some people were really sort of happy and supportive afterwards. And some people haven't spoken to me ever since. So I've had all Mm. kinds of reactions. And, you know, so yes, truly so. Um, it's more than that meets the eye and we just don't make the effort to look beyond sometimes because we're just too busy. Right. <laughs> I'm curious because we actually talked a lot about all kinds of crazy things today from earlier today about Indian politics to the prison industrial complex in America <laughs> to, you know, the curiosity of kids. I'm always just really interested in ideas, whether they're ideas from science or media or spirituality and whatnot, and particularly ideas that help improve the human condition in general. Mm -hmm. And so while we are all individuals, and right now there's over 7 billion individuals on the planet that are all going through their own, the movie of their life is playing out in real time. I'm always curious to see how we have either deliberately or accidentally created systems that keep perpetuating the wrong thing or perhaps, you know, the most unhealthy thing. So we're talking about materialism and attachment, but most of the modern industrial economy is based on one very simple thing, which is consumption and materialism, which is based on playing to our fight or flight intuitions as human beings. We're either going to be motivated by something that draws us towards it, or we're going to be running away from something that we're fearful of. And in the context of this, the economy runs because I keep buying a whole bunch of stuff I don't need from Amazon, 
or someone buys that next car or buys that fifth house or decides to buy that fourth pair of sneakers or whatever the, the thing may be. And as long as people are buying in this system, the engine of the economy of the world keeps turning. The moment people stop buying stuff because they think it will make them happy or fill some sort of gap, the entire system starts to come to a crashing halt. And now all of a sudden we're faced with a different situation, which is where the system that allowed us to live the life that we're living, and it may well be in this weird uh, sort of mirage that we live in, this illusion that we live in. But now that system has come to a halt because people have realized too much and realize they don't need this stuff. We don't necessarily know at scale what that world would look like. And it would probably be, if we even get there or when we get there, it'll probably be a slow progression. So I'm, I guess I'm, I'm kind of going about that to ask, how do you get these ideas into the heads of people in such a way that they can internalize them and make a change that affects the world as a whole without bringing everything to its knees? So, first of all, any kind of change that we want to see outside and around us has to come from within us, you know. I mean, I like the Rumi's quote very much. When I was um, clever, I wanted to change the world. Now I'm wise, I'm changing myself, Mm. you know. So first bring those changes within your own self. And once you do that, you lead by example, you know. One, One of the teachers asked me, uh, I was at this um, second graders, with, uh, at Waldorf School with second graders. And she said, how do you teach kids to do this and do that? I said, don't, don't teach them. Just be with them the way you want them to be. Because mm. kids learn a lot from your behavior. you know, And they are the supreme catchers of your, your actions, your behavior. Right. Your words might say something, but if your behavior is opposite of that, they will follow your behavior. You know, and this is how it is. So if you want this world to be in a certain way, first start the change from your own heart, within your own mind. And then whether you want to chase the next car or not, doesn't matter how you are with people. You know, you can live up your material dream to the hilt, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Nobody's asking you to give that one up. But while you're doing that, what kind of a value system you bring to your work? What kind of a value system you bring to your relationships? What kind of a value system you bring to your neighborhood? Are you in sync with the nature? Are you sync in with, in with, you know, keeping, taking care of it? If you are not, really so, the material success and achievement is not going to make you happy because we are somewhere losing the essence that we are interconnected. Right. My happiness depends on other pe- person's happiness and not other person's bank balance, not on other person's material happiness. Their mental welfare, their spiritual welfare, their emotional welfare, we are dependent on that. That is what we are resonating with each other with. You and I resonated not just because we were going to work together. You know, it. we always knew that, oh, if nothing else, we'll have a friend. Mm-hmm. You know, right. if nothing else, I will know somebody in Canada. I can always go and say hi to. If nobody, if nothing else, I will always know somebody in India. You know, I can always pop and say hi. Let's have a coffee. Right. So let's go beyond what's. Let's go beyond this approach of like, um, what is in for me? You know, this transactional approach. I'm going to say hello. I'm going to make an effort because there's something in for me in there. Can I just be? Can I just drop that and say? And go and meet Anuj or, you know, spend some time with him for what he is. Mm-hmm. 
you know, for what he stands for. So if I know you stand for something positive and nice and happy, you know, and you carry a certain amount of ethics and value systems with you. That's totally not me. (laughs) Yeah, I think I I kind of know that person. I'm terrible. (laughs) So then that makes it easier. You know, and let's mm. not make it so black and white because it's not so black and right. white. You know, there there are people who can create the perfect balance. Like, for example, Richard Gere. He's he's being an actor. He's doing his you know he's living up his dream. He hasn't given up being an actor, and uh, he has this beautiful, amazing spiritual life at the same time. At the same time, he is uh, you know working for all the other kinds of. Um, social causes. So there are people who can strike the balance right there, being in, in the thick of their material life, you know. Then there are people like me who say, maybe that's a distraction for me and I need to spend more time and sort of specialize in that. So here's where I struggle with that. <laughs> Albeit I am an eternal optimist and I, I believe that there is inherent good in most, if not all people. And often, if you were kind of given the right deck of cards or hand of cards, rather, you would do the right thing. But for me in particular, the thing that is challenging is that the systems that exist around us have been built by us, by our own hands or by the hands of you know our ancestors, and they've kind of been handed down. And many of these systems have these inherent monstrosities in them almost that unless you completely step outside of the system – is really hard to break. So for example, you could be the greatest, kindest person, take care of all the kids in your neighborhood, help old ladies across the street, donate to charity and whatnot. But if you happen to be working in some single industry town in America for a weapons manufacturer, and that manufacturer happened to be making bullets or missiles or shells or casings or whatnot, and those are now being dropped on innocent civilians somewhere in the Middle East, or in sub-Saharan Africa or whatever. So in everything in your immediate actions in life, you're living a positive life and you have a positive impact on people. But the thing that's either giving you sustenance or allowing you to provide for your family or your community has got death and destruction built into it. And that might be a little bit more of an obvious example, but whether it's certain industries that have got such inherent monstrosity built into them. There's a number of things that, you know, whether it's the the oil and gas industry or the transportation industry or the military industrial complex or even the pharma industry, there are things that they do that are ravaging societies around the world, making a handful of people a lot of money. But yet a lot of people will work with all of the best intentions within these companies and these systems and whatnot, but they're actually perpetuating the same thing. So I, I, what, I, what I find tricky is I think in some cases you can kind of step outside and say, I'm not going to participate in that system because it's really hard to sort of keep the bad residue off of my hands. But for a lot of people, you either feel you need to participate in it because there's no other alternative or there's few ways to participate in the system without being part of the problem. And so I think this is a thing that kind of, you know, making the right buying choices with the products you buy, supporting perhaps certain leaders in politics versus others. We all have all these choices, but sometimes the choices are not so clean. I I think what I'm getting to is how do we make that transition when we're kind of part of the problem at the same time? Well, that is actually what's the biggest uh, challenge for us. And 
I raise this question to my teacher. You know, sometimes I'm in a dilemma, I'm in a dichotomy, and what's the right decision? What's the right way of doing things? I sometimes would turn down a certain um, role or a commercial coming my way because it doesn't, uh, you know, re- resonate to my senses or my sensibilities. And then at the same time, you think, oh, I, that was a professional blunder, you know? Mm-hmm. But I feel okay about it. Because I did not give in to that commercial I was talking about uh, smoking cigarettes. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm okay. Doesn't matter if they pay me a million bucks, but I'm glad I didn't do it. Right. You know, I don't want to be the face that's selling cigarettes or alcohol to, to young people. It's your motivation. Everything said and done, it's your motivation. And we all know it. Those who have this kind of questions and recognition, then... They do know that by making certain kinds of decisions and over and over again every single day, they are becoming part of the problem. And then they're saying, I'm in, I'm in the system. Well, you have a car, definitely it's going to create pollution. You're going to yeah. be part of the traffic, you know. Then go down to the root. What can I do about it? And how can I? And then that's a com- considerable amount of effort needed to bring about a whole change. And it starts from yourself. Mm-hmm. Do I really need so much? Do I really need that? Do I really need this? There is a difference between need and greed, need and wants. And if we have understood this, it's time to embrace it. It's time to work on it. You know, just by uh, talking about a problem 10 times over, it does not present a solution to us. So, and if we know there is one, let's start to work on it. That's the only thing I can say. There is a story I like to say here. And this is not just a dilemma of today's time and age, just because we have like a whole, uh, you know, industrial sort of um, drama unfolding in in front of us and all this um, economical boom and stuff like that. At the time of Buddha, when he was talking about the kind of actions to refrain from, and his first thing was like, don't do actions that harm the other beings, Mm -hmm. you know, with your body, speech and mind. So don't be violent, don't be aggressive. Uh, don't just say unruly words. Uh, and and in your heart, don't keep malice in your heart. These are the basic ways by which you're harming that other person and yourself. Mm-hmm. So after listening to his sermon, um, there was a butcher in that gathering. He raised his hand and he said, well, this is my livelihood. If I don't kill a cow and I don't sell the meat, I will go hungry and so will my family. This is my livelihood. Are you telling me I should give up my livelihood? Because this is all I know. This is all I can do. So, and the skillful master that he was, first of all, he did not lay a judgment on this person. Oh, you are a bad person. You know? Mm -hmm. This is what we do. Oh, you do that. You are a bad person. You're part of the system... First of that, first was that he did not put any judgment on him. Very skillfully, he says to him, There must be a time during the day when you do not have to kill or cut. He says, Yes, my shop shuts at five. All right, then, take a while that from that time onwards till next morning your shop opens, you will not kill. You will not do actions that bring harm to other beings. You can maintain that integrity for that amount of time, you know. And then you see when you start to do this, 
perhaps in that time you can think of cultivating another skill. Hmm. You know, because the time that you are keeping your vows purely and it's vows to yourself, you know, you will find a way. You will see a change in your own in mental makeup. And this whole aggression, that anger and the numbing of your own self that you go through in the morning when you are chopping. It's not a pleasant sight. Mm-hmm. It's not a pleasant smell to be sitting there. You know. And just that. And that I think it's very it's very skillful if we apply this to ourselves. We can surely find a way out. And there have been people who have found ways out. That is why we have innovations. We can use now cars that doesn't require, you know, fuel. It can run on battery. It can run on other other stuff, you know. There are people who are innovating in that, in that regard. There's not all is lost. There's plenty of hope. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a lot of younger people coming in on the scene and they are invested in sort of keeping our nature in a certain way. I was very impressed by this young girl. I saw her on YouTube. Greta something her name is and uh, she was 14 when she came to UN <clears throat> and made a speech on climate change it completely impressed me mm-hmm. there is there is hope you know and we just need to push ourselves a little bit out of our comfort zones that's all I would say you know and that's being like intellectually lazy mm-hmm. so so imagine a person who can't read and write who has no access to books or school or college education Okay, so you can say, all right, then he's doomed to be the way he is. He doesn't have means. He doesn't have that kind of luxury or, you know, priorities are not correct. What about us? We have it. What's our excuse? What's our excuse to remain numb towards these things or unaffected? Or what's our excuse to say, ah, come on, I'll do it tomorrow? Yeah, I'm. look, I'm the eternal optimist, 100% believe that the good and ingenuity and innovation, particularly in young people, can and will prevail. It may take some time, but we'll get there. I mean, I think it was just last year or perhaps a year before I presented at uh, my daughter's school. The whole topic to these 13 and 14-year-olds was, you're never too young to change the world. And I pulled up examples of seven or eight young people all under the age of 19 that have just done incredible things. Mm -hmm. Like the things they've done in their short lives would make anyone else's contributions, at least, you know, to the world, seem small. So you never really are too young. And I think that young people in particular still are very much in touch with that fire. The prison of their mind hasn't yet fully formed. So they're able to kind of think outside of that and and, and think big and take risks. And so I, I believe that fully. It's just curious to kind of hear, you've been through this journey. And I think some of the principles from which you're kind of drawing are pervasive and eternal for all time. It's just, I, I find this conversation actually comes up a lot with people I know because it's like, but yeah, what can you, we actually do about it? And w- what I find is interesting, everyone agrees that doing the right thing, however small that contribution is, is still a contribution. Mm-hmm. And yet many people will say, but it doesn't make a difference. So, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of little things that we can do that will still move the ball, you know, in the right direction. And yet so so many of us kind of avoid that. And and I've never really kind of figured out why that is. Like, is it just because it's just that we are intellectually lazy? Is it because 
it's inconvenient and it causes you to take a slightly longer route or takes a little bit more time or whatever it is, are we really just completely creatures of comfort? And if that's the case, then, you know, I just hope more people have conversations like these and wake up. I guess it's about time that we wake up. And yeah, and when I work with people who are going through some kind of substance abuse, um, this is my observation that they are not actually addicted to the substance, alcohol, Mm -hmm. drugs or whatever they're doing. They are addicted to escaping reality that they can't deal with. And this is something some, we have to sit and look at the behavior like maybe by taking this, it will alter something in my mind. It will take away that that I can't deal with it. But it won't. Once you are coming down, it brings you back to the same cycle, the same downward mm-hmm. spiral. So it's about time we wake up. When you say we're never too young to change the world, I like to say we're never too old too to change old. ourselves. Yeah. Start from there and start from where you are. Each one of us has a different mental disposition and a different conditioning. Mm-hmm. Of course, we are in the human race, and but we, everybody's wired differently. We all have our own potential. So really start from where you are and, and check. And I encourage a lot of my friends and people who come in contact with me, don't just use material or listen to things and then trash it away, you know, reflect Really, and and the way I approach it is you read something, read, reflect, meditate. And these tools are very simple. They're so simple, it's even even ridiculous to talk about it. But if you just do these three things, Mm -hmm. it will come into practice, you know. And it doesn't matter if change is slow. Change is a change. Right. You know, and be open to it. Let's be open to it. And not everything is that dark. Yeah. No, you no, know. I, I agree. And any any change uh, for the better, however small or slow, is still uh, a step in the right direction. I want to understand a little bit more about since we first met and the journey that you've been on, part of that journey has been traveling. Like yes. You've been traveling a lot. You were saying that you haven't been home. First of all, whatever home, quote unquote, <laughs> is, so we can get to that. But you haven't been to the place that you kind of grew up in and spent the most time in early on in life. You've been all over the world. I want to understand, like, from your experiences in traveling in India, outside of India, what is it about traveling that you like? And what do you get out of traveling? Like, how has travel itself been part of your story and your realization? First of all, when I'm traveling and meeting people, it helps me relax my doors of my own mental box. You know, it's like, oh, there is a there's a world outside there you know? mm-hmm. and there is there is diversity and and um, there is some newness. There's one aspect like what's new? You know, how do these people live and what is their lifestyle and how do they survive? What are their set of values? And so that's one aspect that I really enjoy meeting people, connecting people. Um and then after some time, I feel, oh, yeah, no matter who they are, they all want to be happy. Mm. You know, no matter which part of the world I'm in, everybody's seeking nothing but happiness. It's just that they don't know that it's inside. Some of them do. So they are a state of like, you know, 
um, good balance and calm calmness and some of them don't. For me, travel also means um, accepting differences, hmm. you know, uh, integrating and understanding interconnectedness with, with other beings, other cultures, other languages, and respecting. Because we live in our own bubble, like, because my community lives like this, so life is like this. Right. You know, anything else, anything out, outside of this should be rejected, you know. But that is what has gone away. It, it is accepting that there are the ways, there are the lifestyles, there, there are the means. And life is really is so truly colorful and beautiful. And let's go out there and enjoy. I think people should invest more in travel and buying houses. I mean, I imagine you used to travel even before becoming a, a Buddhist nun. But have you noticed your interactions with the world, or rather the world's interactions with you, are they different today in a way that you notice than they would have been if you weren't a nun? Very different. Like how so? Um, when I was an actor, a model, there used to be a sense of um, distance, you know. Even though I wanted to travel and embrace, but there was always, oh, you, this is the celebrity, and there was a sense of distance. You know, you have to maintain a distance from people and public. And <clears throat> now all that facade has fallen down, and it's more embracing. You know, my own um, mind has changed, and uh, it's not like, oh, I need to sleep at this hour because I have to look a certain way. Mm. You know, it adds to my freshness of my so-called skin and beauty all that facades have fallen down and it's like and from my side it's like if somebody needs me i'll wake up i'll be there i'll be available you know and honestly i don't have a home i live in people's homes mm -hmm. and i'm traveling you know so it's living on people's kindness and every time i'm doing that like you're hosting me today you know it's like amazing the part of my head goes oh this is so kind and how can i repay this kindness yeah, I always carry this thought when I'm meeting somebody or when I'm being with somebody or I'm part of someone's home and their life for, for a day, two, whatever it may be. How can I make their time? How can I make them feel happy in that time? What can I do if not happy really take away some kind of, uh, you know, problems or soothe them in some way? So, and I tell you, it has been just so enriching. Just going with this attitude. As opposed to earlier, I'm there for some bit, waving hands to your fans and signing a few autographs. You know, it was it was flaky, to be very honest. Even though I, part of me wanted to go out and like enjoy, be myself, but I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. But do you find that some people in this incarnation, right, as a you know as a as a nun, especially in this part of the world, like, you know, I think India is a little bit of a different beast altogether because there's this constant intermingling of past and present and future and technology and tradition. And so I, I think people are used to seeing on the same street, a Bentley driving down and some hotshot like superstar. And then, you know, a bunch of monks or sadhus on the same street, right? Yes. I, I think India is a very visceral experience that way. Cause all mm -hmm. of that's playing out on the street in front of you. Mm -hmm. In this part of the world, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I still remember the first time I saw, you know, some of these Tibetan monks in an area called Parkdale that's not too far from where we are now. 
And I remember I was driving, I did maybe a triple take because you see all of them in like, you know, sort of the saffron robes walking down the street. You know, it's just, it's Toronto. And then you've got these Tibetan monks and it was so out of place. Now I'm, you see more and more of it, but it's not typical. And so in that context, you're saying as a celebrity, people would have kept distance from you. I wonder if a lot of people don't keep distance from you and perhaps either you're aware of it or not because when they see you, they don't really know what to do or they feel like maybe they aren't worthy of talking to you or maybe they don't feel like they're at the best point in their life where they can really engage with you. Do you ever come across that with people? Uh, Not typically so, but yes, I do come across a lot of curious glances when I'm walking here, like what's going on sometimes. (laughs) It was a funny incident just recently in the United States. I was at uh, a store, you know, at a grocery store, and uh, this kid was like playing along with the trolley and everything, and then he kind of accidentally hit me. So uh, his mom said, this is not how you behave with people. And he's like, he just kind of stared at her, you know. Like, be nice to people who are going through cancer. <laughs> oh, no, she didn't. Oh, wow. So she, she has assumed because I have a bald head that I am a cancer patient. But that's okay. Right. You know, it doesn't matter to me. But see, it's not just about how people are approaching me. I'm also part of it. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, so if I find someone looking at me, I often just break into a smile and... I allow that thing to dissipate, that you can approach me, you know. And honestly, that would not be the case when I was an actor, you know. I wouldn't be the first one to be breaking the ice there, you know, or even allowing some kind of uh, communication. And I'm not just verbal, any other kind. I would just, like, walk like that Mm -hmm. (laughs) with my sunglasses on. If you don't see me, it's fine. If you see me, okay, you know, try to be invisible. So here... I mean, that element is not there. I don't have that inhibition from my side. Right. And um, and not to say that I go knocking on people's shoulders and say hi, say hi to me. <laughs> but yeah, it also, what kind of attitude you're giving out? Mm-hmm. You know, what's your approach when someone looks at you? If they're looking at me with curiosity, great. Then this can be a thing for a dialogue, you know, and then you just get to meet another person. Interesting. That's, I mean, that's, uh, I never would have put those thoughts together, but yeah, I can see why, especially here, someone would see, you don't often see women, you know, with their heads shaved. And when you do, it's either very specific look or statement that that person's making, or in other cases, they are going through chemo at that time. So, Mm -hmm. but it's so interesting, the stories we make up in our heads about complete strangers that we haven't even met. And then that story becomes something that's stuck. And if all of a sudden, I imagine, I'm projecting here, but I imagine if that woman then found out you actually aren't a cancer patient, but are in fact a Buddhist nun who's just visiting right now, Mm -hmm. she would have a hard time separating what you're telling her from what she thought she believed to be true about you. We create these projections in our minds all the time and that becomes our reality and it becomes, we all live in this world and the thing that we call reality is actually just a loose agreement on what this hallucination is Mm -hmm. you and i believe that we're sitting here in toronto in this studio having this conversation but it's just biochemical reactions in our brain 
projecting themselves and creating this sense of like, we're here at this time and place. And we could be completely wrong. Like we could be, we could be embryos in a vat somewhere on an alien planet or somewhere in a simulation in the matrix, or we could just be completely asleep. And there's no way for us to necessarily know empirically if that's true or not right now. So I find it just interesting constantly that we, we go to war over stories we fall in love over stories. We fall out of favor with people over stories. And all of these stories are just like projections in our mind. I, I know I just, I find that really fascinating about people. And I do, I'm guilty of this charge too. I, I see somebody walking down the street. I'll make up some story in my head, like almost innately about what I think that person is or what their day is going like. And it's probably 99.9% of the time absolutely wrong mm-hmm. and i have had a very interesting response recently just coming on projection so um i was at uh at a parking lot outside of store it was a salon actually and there was this woman there like bright red hair it was a nail salon so she probably was getting a nail son or something mm-hmm. and she looked at me you know and she looked at me in a way and i thought like what you know my mind was like what you know and after some time, she was like, are you a Buddhist nun? And I was like, huh, so she knows what this garb is all about. And right, she yeah, understands yeah. this appearance. And I was like, yes, I am. And um, she kind of looked, who was heavily into wearing, you know, fancy makeup and all kinds of like styling and things like that. So she was really like a fashionista standing there. And um, she goes... Uh, I asked her where is she from, and she was from, uh, um, I think, Poland or someplace. And she was Polish, I think. And she goes, uh, this must take a lot of dedication. And you really inspire me. And I wasn't expecting these words from her. Hmm. I thought the next thing she would say, why did you do that to yourself? You know? Right, right. And I caught myself. Just mm. because she looks a certain way, you know. And when she said those words to me, and I was so pleasantly taken aback, and I was like, hmm. And she goes, uh, I truly appreciate her dedication. And I was like, and you look lovely. Because she actually was looking quite quite amazing in whatever she was wearing and the way she was carrying herself. And she goes, it takes a lot of time and effort. You look amazing just the way you are. Hmm. You know, for me, that was so real. Right. You know, I thought that in spite of she doing up her face or doing whatever she was styling the way she was, she was so real and honest in that moment, you know. Mm-hmm. And I caught myself thinking I'm going to get a remark from her. Right. You know, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. We do tend to get caught in these projections and it's not the way it is. I think anyone who says they don't have innate biases is either completely delusional or lying to themselves because we all do like there's no way you can see a person walking down the street and not have some sort of idea form in your mind of who you think they are or what they're about or whether you should avoid them or go towards them or whatnot I think we're all guilty of it because we can't meet everybody on the planet there's no way you would meet all 7 billion people ever. Mm-hmm. So you will look at the next person based on the set of experiences that you previously had with someone that you believe in some way was like them, right? Whether it's the color of their skin or the country that they're from 
or a look or the thing that they're wearing or whatnot, perhaps the next time you see a lady with fire red hair in front of a nail salon, your projection might be a little bit more charitable to that person because Mm -hmm. of this experience, right? Yes. But now you're carrying the bias from this experience into the next one. But we are animals in that way, and there's no... Well, that's where you intercept it, you know, that there's no need to really carry on these biases. This is where you intercept it. And I, like I said, I caught myself. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, relax, not coming that way. You know, I'm just, she's just smiling, she's just looking because... Her, her first glance threw me off, you know. Right. Like, then I was like, what? <laughs> you know, what? <laughs> but not like I said it to her. It was in my head. And a um, few days before that, I earlier, I think, um, we were outside a store. Not really a store, a parking lot. And there was this um, man, a homeless man sitting with a dog. You know, so I asked my friend, like, if she could pull over and I wanted to give some money. So she's like, okay. So we rolled the window down and and I put my hand out. I was so surprised by what he said to me. He gave a look at me and he goes, how are you doing today, sister? Are you doing all right? And I was like, I'm fine. And I'm like, he's the one who's on the street, who has no food, holding a sign, needs money to feed his dog. And I said, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I was just thinking and then you rolled up and, you know, it's a great day. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I hand him the money. And he goes, are you sure you don't need this? I said, no, this is for you. He held my hand, shook it really well. And I was like, that was very interesting. So my friend, she's a veterinarian. And she goes, I bet he thought you're having cancer. <laughs> so he actually thought, she said, he actually thought, because the way he said, you know, I hope you're having a good day and you're doing all right today. And are you sure you don't need this money? You know? And I thought, to me, I thought, he's just being kind. Because maybe he he says, he sees a nun giving him money and he feels, don't you need it yourself? Are you giving it to me? You know? And that was my, I'm just talking about projections. Mm. So her mind was thinking, no, I think he thinks you're sick. And my mind was thinking, he's just so kind. He's concerned if I have enough to give. You know? So... Wow. And, and just at any given moment, there's billions of intersections of people's Absolutely. mental projections with each other that Absolutely. are all like, that all may be wrong, but are at least entertaining. Wow. That's, that's interesting. I'd never even thought that that could be a thing. And now I don't think I can unthink that. You're very optimistic. You're very uh, positive. You've got like a, a great energy about you. But I have to ask you, what actually concerns you? or scares you or like when you look out at the world um there is a lot of beauty there's no question i don't think we disagree at all but what is there that you're seeing happening either today or throughout time that makes you think this isn't we're not going the right direction well there are many things that um sometimes when i mull over it brings me down you know and then i have to remind myself you know that's not the end of the world um, um, a certain kind of uh, numbness we carry, you know, when when we see things going wrong. A certain certain kind of like um, I I remember my friends using this phrase, and that I used to really freak out when I would hear it. Um, I'm comfortably numb. Hmm. You know, 
I'm in, uh, I'm in doing my peace meditation. So, and I was like, what does that mean? Becoming complacent, you know, not wanting to recognize and change and do things and not wanting to take an initiative. When I see that, especially in the youth, in certain, certain kinds of sections of society, that kind of gets me a little bit, uh, you know, nervous that, oh, this is not a healthy trend. When I see a lot of our uh, young energy being wasted in addictions and things like that and, or getting involved in hate crimes and things like that. And then the whole system then kind of instead of helping the being out, perpetuating it in a certain way that there is no hope, mm-hmm. you know, or there is kind of a um, good amount of sort of um, suffering being given out there. So then these incidents, these kinds of trends kind of make me feel, oh, there's a long way. There's a lot of work to be done, you know. Yeah, elements like this. And sometimes in my own head, if I have to think, uh, if there's something I can deal with, it's about, is my mind reaching a point where I would lose empathy for the person who's the perpetrator? Hmm. Uh, or will I be able to hold an equanimous mind? even though I know I'm receiving some kind of harm or discomfort from a certain element, certain person, can I still keep a sense of calm and can I, can I still resonate back to him from a sense of compassion and forgiveness? So losing my edge on that you mm. know, uh, will probably make my world crash. <laughs> so, yeah. So I keep, I have to keep, this is my personal exercise I keep doing, keep checking my, what's going on in your mind, you know. Right. And, and that I'm very glad and thankful to my teachers for giving us all these tools for mind training, texts and things like that. Like um, towards the end of the day, you know, just go over a little check. That what, what is that that brought you on this level or irked you a little bit? How was your reaction? Did you catch yourself? And if you did, you know, all of those sort of Take a take a check towards the end of the day. It's it's interesting now that the, the way you describe that. I I, I think growing up here, um, growing up in the West and seeing, like obviously being very familiar with, um, you know, spiritual and traditions from you know the you know from, uh, you know from Buddhism, from Hinduism, uh, you know from Sufism. I, a lot of this sort of real um, spiritual transcendental type. Um, philosophies very familiar and have been around it but it's funny I only just realized as you were describing that whenever I've seen someone who is you know a let's call a you know a sadhu or a, you know a nun or a monk you kind of see them uh, I imagine myself and many people look at them as they've mastered something they've mastered that sort of struggle within and what it sounds like is it's, you no, know, you're actually just a dedicated student of, you know, eventually hopefully being able to master that. But like, you know, you have many of the same uh, challenges and inclinations. Perhaps you've got a better tool set and better uh, capability to, to manage them. But like, I think we all, you know, we, we try to not let someone get under our skin or get the better of us or, you know, um, you know, become the worst version of ourselves with people. Uh, I think we all struggle with that. And it's just, I think it's it's almost, it's interesting that we like to put certain people that, you know, either look a certain way or, you know, put themselves in a in a different path in life. And we say, 
they're at this place and I'm not there. Um, it's, it's interesting that you're, you're really, I think, just a humble student, you know, of this and not necessarily a master, at least not yet. I would like to remain a student. <laughs> this is, I think the learning can never end. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it can once, once you have got some deeper realization. It ends for some people. But I've seen even my master's sort of going over doing these kind of meditations every single day. And I that boggles my mind. Why do you have to do it? You know, of course, there's, there's an aspect they show us so that they keep inspiring us, you know. Uh, we have like this kind of minds that or we always like to copy what my teacher is doing and imitate them. So I think they do it because just to inspire us. But you're right, Lisa. Yeah, I think true creatives, whether it's in arts or in any other field, or just people who are cognizant that we are creating our own reality every day, I think are just tend to be constantly curious. Like I, I spent, uh, you know, some time around Ustad Zakir Hussain or Zakirji when I was in Edmonton, and I always found it interesting that as much as he's reached the peak of proficiency on this instrument today, as a as a tabla maestro and you know one of the greatest percussionists on the planet, he's just constantly curious to try new things, mm-hmm. and he sees himself very much so as a student of it. It's kind of humbling, actually, when you see somebody who has reached that level, a level that's sort of inconceivable to, you know, any mere person. And yet they're still like, no, I'm still figuring this out. It's uh, that's actually really encouraging. You've been very gracious with your time. And I think really the honor is ours, you know, my fleet and I like to, to have you here today. Really excited to, to have you. For that Makidal, I can be here anytime. Well, yeah, no. So, yeah. <laughs> My wife, Felita, is is magic, and quite honestly, I think we get to hang out because she's way cooler than I am. I'm just kind of along for the ride. What do you want to leave people with as kind of a thought-provoking idea or takeaway? You know, they wake up tomorrow morning, they heard what you had to say, and perhaps they see things a little bit differently. In a conversation today, I think we were trying to sort of gauge like the person that I am and the person that I want to be. You know, and then how do I be? So I think the person that I am and the person that I want to be, if anybody's stopping, that process is me. And the only difference is that it's the same person. You just have to really give yourself a little push, a little pat on your back and say, go ahead and be the person you want to be. You know, and... I don't I don't really say become a better version of you because what is going to be a better version of ego? More ego, more profound ego, you know. So become the ultimate version of you, the best version of you. So become enlightened, awaken. I have to ask this. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of people who are on their own path have at points in their life earlier on or still continue to do so to get to these sort of other realms of consciousness. They have gone through different hallucinogenic substances or DMT or whatnot. In your experience, have you come across these experiences or people that have done this and do they kind of come to the same conclusions about the world, the universe, the oneness of humanity, this loss of self, that someone who is put in 
the years and the time to really harnessing their mind and focusing their their attention like do you see substances as a viable path to some of these realizations and is there some value in that for society do you mean substances like everything from marijuana to mushrooms to dmt like any hallucinogens <laughs> have you come across anybody like in your travels and whatnot that have used that as part of their personal pursuit to this higher level of no i haven't honestly you know i do know people who who kind of engage in these um kind of substance and you know intoxicants and things like that but whether they have achieved a high level of consciousness or you know awakening or something i have no idea and i personally don't sort of um go on to that path and um I mean, we we already have so much drama going on in our heads. We need clarity, mm-hmm. you know. And to be able to get that clarity and to be able to have insights, we don't need mind-altering drugs. You know, we need to have alertness. We don't need to be, you know, for the deluded state. We already have enough delusions. So um, for me, I think if you if somebody is having really strong acute pain, because they're going through a certain kind of treatment, like for some cancer patients and, uh, you know, so in, inducing a bit of cannabis is done to reduce their pain is a different story. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like medical use of something. And it's, but to really sort of partake in that and think, oh, I'm going to achieve this, I'm going to achieve that is just a narrative of the mind that should be trashed right away. Stay away from that stuff. Just say no to drugs, kids. <laughs> That's it. Stay away. <laughs> um, with that, Barkha, thank you just so much for being here with us today. I hope that we get to see you again soon. It's It's been a, a hell of a day. It's been a lot of fun, actually. Not every day you get to hang out with a good friend who also happens to be a Buddhist nun, mm-hmm. but you're the coolest as they go in terms of the, the nuns <laughs> that I know. So, um, you know, just uh, wish you all the best and, and hope to see you again soon. Thank you so very much. It's been joyful to be here. Thank you. So if you've listened till this point in the episode, I can only assume one of two things. You either A, really dig this podcast, or B, you started playing the podcast and left the room and totally forgot it was even playing, and right now I'm just talking to nobody. So if you are digging this podcast, there's many ways that you can support it. You can definitely subscribe in your app of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, in TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and for all the folks around the world, we're on Ruckus Avenue Radio. You can also follow us on social media, on Instagram, we're at Awoken Word Podcast. On Twitter, as at Awoken Word. We also have a Facebook page under Awoken Word Podcast. Hey, if you've got an idea for a guest or a conversation or a topic that you'd like to see or hear touched on, please reach out. Let us know. Feel free to share some of these ideas or bring up some of these ideas in your own podcast. If you're hanging out with friends or family, maybe over beers or coffee or a smoothie, Who am I to judge? If you're hanging out with someone and something comes to mind, tell them about this podcast. Tell them this is where you heard it. 
tell your family, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your great grandma, tell that weird naked guy who hangs out on his balcony on the building across the street from you all the time. We appreciate the support of each and every one of you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until the next episode of Awoken Word, peace out.